Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting January 10th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, high schooler Dimitri Vantrop talks about his mathematical project that recently won the annual Siemens competition in math, science, and technology, and that comes with a $100,000 scholarship. We'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. And first up, author and journalist Carl Zimmer. He wrote the article Evolved for Cancer in the January issue of Scientific American. To find out more about why cancer may be an unavoidable part of being human, I called Carl at his home in Guilford, Connecticut. Hey, Carl, how are you? Good, Steve. How are you? I'm pretty good. You uh, you have this article in the current Scientific American. You have a quote in the article, in one sense, cancer is a side effect of evolution. So that's pretty interesting. What exactly does it mean? Well, it means that the way that our, our bodies are built and the way that they have, have evolved makes cancer almost an inevitable uh, byproduct. I mean, we have these these big bodies made up of uh, trillions of cells, and they're only going to work if they um, all cooperate, if, if the cells all do what they're supposed to do. And the problem is that every time a cell divides, uh, there's a small chance it might mutate. In some cases, those mutations may lead to cancer. And so, you know, the fact, unless we want to be just single-celled creatures, we're going to have to grapple with cancer as part of our evolutionary heritage. Yeah, I prefer to be a multicellular organism. Um, <laughs> so why does natural selection not weed cancer out if it's such a uh, detrimental, you know, entity among us humans? Yeah, we, we like to think of natural selection as being this all-perfect force, this thing that can basically uh, make everything great. And that's just not how natural selection works. Uh, it, it can produce some complex organs like the eye, for example, but um, it has its limits. And part of the problem is that natural selection faces trade-offs. So if there's a strategy that uh, um, boosts your chances of survival um, against one threat, it might make you more vulnerable to another threat. So, for example, we actually have defenses against cancer. Um, we have genes that make proteins that act sort of like uh, gatekeepers, and they sort of monitor our cells to make sure that they're not starting to grow out of control. Um, and if those cells do grow out of control, they get killed, or they just kind of go into uh, an early old age. They, they stop reproducing. The problem is that, that this can be very damaging um, and can actually be bad for our overall health. I mean, if these proteins get too active, there are um, a lot of bad things that they can do. So there's only so much that, that we can rely on those proteins to protect us. And so some cancer is going to get through as a result. There's just this balance there that, that natural selection has to negotiate. You talk in the article about some mouse studies in which the, the genes for tumor suppression are turned off, and, and there are actually some, some really good effects of that. Yeah, these are genes that have been identified as being really crucial in uh, protecting us from cancer. So, you know, you'd think that, that they would just be pure good. I mean, these are, these are the genes that you want to have, um, and if you get rid of them, they, they ought to be a complete catastrophe. Well, um, if you turn off some of these genes, and scientists have done this in mice, uh, it is true that, that they suffer uh, more from cancer, 
But on the other hand, um, they are also able to bounce back from other kinds of uh, diseases and such. So, for example, these uh, scientists took these mice and destroyed um, the cells in their pancreas that make insulin. Uh, basically, they gave these, these mice diabetes, uh, and these mice were able to very quickly regenerate um, the cells they needed to uh, make more insulin and to basically um, kind of cut down on the diabetes they were suffering from. Whereas with normal mice, which had the working versions of these genes for fighting cancer, um, their diabetes got so bad that sometimes they died. So, um, so again, we're, we're, we're facing this trade-off. You know, if you want to be protected against cancer, you may become more vulnerable to other diseases. And natural selection is just going to have to find the balance. You, you also talk in the article about the, the really interesting history in our species of this gene for fatty acid synthase. You want to go through that? Because that's another example of these kinds of trade-offs that evolution has to deal with. Yeah, um, fatty acid synthase is uh, a gene that um, uh, helps to uh, build membranes in our cells. Um, and um, it, uh, it appears that it uh, evolved very quickly in our own lineage. After our ancestors branched off from chimpanzees, it went through a really rapid uh, evolution. And some scientists suspect that it may have been involved in the evolution of the human brain, which is obviously really unique compared to other primates. So there may have been something involved in making our, our brains you know, run faster, for example. Um, because of the way the membranes of the neurons are built. The problem is that this gene uh, is also um, really handy for cancer cells. Um, it somehow seems to be, they somehow are able to use it to get more energy uh, because cancer cells are reproducing really quickly and they need a lot of energy to do that. And the more energy they can get, the faster they can grow. And they seem to basically borrow this gene, this gene which may have helped to make us uniquely human, they borrow that gene. I mean, if you if you uh, interfere with it in a cancer cell, you may be able to kill the cancer cell. That's how important it is. So again, um, you know, evolution may, may give with one hand and take away with the other. You know, I'm reminded of uh, the scene in Blade Runner just before Rutger Hauer digs his thumbs into his creator's eyeballs and the creator of, uh, of the, uh, I forget what they're called, the replicants, I think, are, is, is explaining to him all the, all the things that they tried to do to extend their lifespan, but, but the roadblocks that they ran up against in each case. But, uh, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> well, uh, it does bring up the, this, the fact that, I mean, cancer is a horrible disease. All of us who have seen our loved ones die of cancer just can't help but hate it and, and want to see there be a cure for it. And so it, it is a pretty um, grim thought that somehow evolution may be um, either preventing cancer from being eliminated or, or in some cases, in some strange ways, uh, promoting it. Promoting it, yeah. But, you know, evolution is not about making us happy. Um, and uh, the fact is that, uh, you know, uh, cancer generally is a disease of, of the old. Um, and in a sense, what has happened is evolutionists have pushed off a lot of cancers to our old age, and you know, it's 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 a horrible thing to to die of cancer uh, at any age. But um, if you are dying of cancer uh, long after your reproductive years, 
natural selection is basically blind to that. It doesn't that doesn't enter into the books. So you know we just have to deal with uh, what evolution has dealt us. Now, some cancer researchers may think that thinking about these issues from an evolutionary perspective is interesting, but not necessarily fruitful. So what, what's the reaction to, to that kind of thinking? Yeah, as I was working on this article, um, I called up uh, some cancer biologists to just get a sense of what they thought of all this. And for a lot of cancer biologists, it's a very new way of thinking. Um, I mean, they're very much focused on particular mechanisms. Okay, what protein is allowing this tumor to uh, proliferate and to get blood vessels to come to it and feed it? Uh, they're, they're really down there in the, in the nuts and bolts of cancer. And these evolutionary biologists are, are taking a really long view. You know, they're thinking in terms of millions or hundreds of millions of years and processes that are going on on this totally different time scale. And so they feel in some cases like well, well this is interesting but you know what's it going to what's it going to do for me you know right here right now in the lab and i think though that that there are some cancer biologists who are starting to to see that there may be some very particular ways in which this kind of perspective uh from from evolution may be able to help them so for example it may be able to um help them pinpoint um specific genes that may be playing a really important role in cancer that might not have otherwise been been noticed. Um, and it may help them to understand what are the, the particular pressures that are they're driving a gene to evolve in a certain way uh, that's favored by natural selection that might also be make them um, sort of a better weapon for a cancer cell. So, you know, it's it's the early days yet, and there's a lot of skepticism, healthy skepticism, but there's also sort of a meeting of two cultures, um, of the cancer biologists and the evolutionary biologists. And it's really neat to sort of see that happening at, right at the beginning. The article is Evolved for Cancer in the January Scientific American. And in the author's box, it says that you're, you're working on a new book about E. coli and the meaning of life. Is that right? Yeah. I've been getting really interested in how biologists think about what it means to be alive just the most basic question that biology can ask. And uh, it's kind of a uh, kind of a crazy question to investigate in a book. Uh, and the best way I found to sort of constrain it is to look at one thing. Um, and so I decided to pick the thing that scientists know best, and that's E. coli. I mean, it basically is the, uh, is, is the, the one thing that more than anything made molecular biology possible and there's a huge amount of research going on it now. And when does that book come out? Well, uh, sometime in 2008. We haven't uh, decided exactly when. Have you finished writing it? I just did. Oh, good for you. <laughs> Carl, great to talk to you. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot, Steve. Carl Zimmer's article is also available at our website, www.siam.com. And check out a lot of his writing at his website, www.carlzimmer.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is Totally Bogus. Story one, the American Dialect Society choice as word of the year for 2006 is Plutoed. Story two, Tucson's toilets are being visited by what appear to be white rats. 
like those sold as pets or found in labs. Story three: Americans get eight percent of their calories from liquids rather than from foods that you chew. And story four: One scientist thinks we may already have stumbled upon life on Mars and killed it. We'll be back with the answer, but first, last month Dmitry Vantrub won the prestigious Siemens competition in math, science, and technology for high school students for his project involving something called string topology. One of the judges, Harvard mathematician Michael Hopkins, said that Vantrub found a very beautiful formula for describing the way shapes combine in string theory. He also said the work was at the doctoral level already and was already attracting a lot of attention. To find out more, I called Dmitry at his home in Eugene. Oregon. Hi, Dimitri. How are you? Hi, Steve. I'm fine. Thanks. Congratulations on winning the Siemens competition. Oh, thank you. And the hundred thousand dollars that goes along with it. I'm sure that'll come in handy. Yeah, that is pretty nice. Yeah. So, Dimitri, how old are you? I'm 18. And are you graduating from high school this year? Yeah, I'm a senior this year. Yeah. When did you first realize that you had a talent for mathematics? Well, I don't know. I've been interested in math for as long as I can remember, and I've always asked my dad lots of questions about math because my my dad's a mathematician.、Um, so I, I, I'd ask questions, I guess, about not only math but physics and pretty much anything I could think of.、Um, but of course, my dad could answer the math questions best. So that、um, was, that was the dinner table conversation in your household. Was, yeah, that was the dinner table conversation, except, except for that was before my sister was born. So is she good at math too? My sister, yeah, she's pretty good at math. Yeah, but she's she she doesn't understand the the idea of, of spending dinner talking about math. Well, how old is she? She's、um, eight. She's eight. She okay. Just turned eight. Okay.、Um, but she's an artist. And what does your mom do? She's been a poet and a writer, and now she、um, teaches in the university. She teaches Russian culture and、mm, literature. Uh huh. So now, did your talent for mathematics did it exhibit itself at an early age? Do you remember any incidents when you were a little kid where you just noticed things mathematically that other people might not have noticed? Well, yeah. So my my dad gave me problems. So I guess I, I had the opportunity to、um, think about math a lot earlier than other kids. So I guess、um, I remember at some point I was I guess when I was maybe eight, like my sister. So my dad told me the Pythagorean th- theorem that,、um, yeah, for a triangle with the right angle, the sum of the squares of two sides is equal to the square of the third side. But, and so he he told me that sometimes the, the triangle、um, can have integer lengths. So sometimes you can have, say, three squared plus four squared is equal to five squared. Right. And so he gave me a chance to find、um, as many. So these these are called Pythagorean triples. He, he gave me the chance to find as many triples as I can,、uh-huh. and so I started thinking about triples. And I found a few, and then he. So of course, if, if you have a triple, then if you say double all the sides, then you have another triple.、Um, so it's easy to get、um, as many triples as you like. So actually, an, an infinite number of triples this way. But so my dad sort of gave me this chance to find an infinite number of triples that aren't multiples of each other.、Uh-huh. And so I, I remember I thought about that for a while, and then、um, I came up with this fun. Way to to get an infinite number of triples, and I was really excited. So, so that was, I guess, my first the first time I can remember when I was really excited about coming up with something in math. Do you think you can explain to a person who might have trouble balancing their checkbook what your winning project was about? I could try. Yeah, my 
project was in a field called topology. And so this is actually a field in math that doesn't study numbers as so many people expect that math studies numbers, but topology actually studies shapes. So even though we think of a sphere as sort of three-dimensional, but we we know that we live on a sphere. And since we're very small and the sphere is very big, it looks just as if the, the sphere is, there is, um, is flat. Mm -hmm. So because of this, sort of because everywhere locally, there it looks flat, it's called two-dimensional. But now, so how, how can we find out, for instance, that there is, um, isn't just, just flat, isn't just a plane. Well, the way, one way to do this is what, to do what Magellan did and to go, um, on a trip around the world. Right. Where if you, you wind started, up exactly where you started, it has yeah. to be a sphere or at least some kind of a shape. Exactly. That's, yeah. So, and you can't do that on a plane. Right. So, could be a cylinder, but it's certainly not a plane. So this, this sort of showed that, yeah, that, um, the Earth is topologically not a plane. And so, yeah, the way, the way he showed it was by making a loop around the Earth. Right. So that this that takes a lot of time and energy, and you have to have a whole crew of people to run your ships. Yeah, but, exactly. So, but you're working on, uh, you know, in, in a uh, much more elegant environment where you're thinking about it. Or, yeah, you don't have to actually it. go yeah, and get, get a crew to go around the world. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so there are also other constructions you can do with loops. One, and so one of them is called um, string topology. So this is actually one, instead of having single loops, you have sort of families of lots of loops that you can also sort of multiply. And so the um, string topology was actually discovered just a few years ago, 1999. And I guess it was sort of motivated by physics and string theory, so it's, it's related to physics. Um, so the problem with string topology is that um, to, con to compute it um, for... Most shapes, even even for surfaces, it's it's very hard because in a way there's lots and lots of different loops. And so what what I did in my project is I showed that for certain shapes, so for certain two-dimensional shapes and also higher-dimensional shapes, this string topology can actually be computed um, using uh, abstract construction from this much more, uh, I guess, easy to compute or e easier to work with construction called, called the, the fundamental group. So basically I showed um, that this construction that comes from the field of math is called abstract algebra. So by this sort of abstract construction is actually the same as uh, construction that's pure topological, the string topology. So I guess I, I related these two objects in, in different fields and I showed that um, for certain shapes they're actually the same. And this could have some applications in in actual real world physics, or just in string theory, or I guess so. Whenever you do something in, in math or in physics, you, you you really never know what sort of applications it can have. So, uh -huh. um, of course, I, I don't know of any immediate applications in physics, and um, I, I don't know physics well enough to think of any. But it would not but, be surprising if ten years from now somebody winds up using the system that you came that, up with to do something in the real world. I think that's possible. Either either this or something that comes out of it. Because also in math, whenever whenever you prove something, either there's usually something else that, that sort of either follows out of it, either directly or indirectly. Well, Dimitri, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and best of luck in college, and uh, dos vidanya. Baka. For more on Ventrob and the Siemens competition, go to www.siemens-foundation.org. Siemens is spelled S-I-E-M-E-N-S. 
Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, the official word of the year is Plutoed. Story two, white rats are showing up in the toilets of Tucson. Story three, Americans get 8% of their calories from liquids. And story four, scientists think our probes might have killed Martian bacteria. Time's up. Story one is true. The American Dialect Society picked Plutoed as its word of the year. Plutoed, as you probably figured out, means to be demoted. So, uh, Pluto, uh, any chance you're going to be uh, cleaning out that desk soon? To hear the entire Pluto meets office space bit, check out the end of the August 30th edition of Science Talk at www.siam.com slash podcast. Story two is true. White rats are plaguing Tucson's toilets. The nearby Arizona Health Sciences Center says their procedures make it impossible that the rats originated there. That's according to the Associated Press, which also quoted the local health department's unnecessary advice, it's best not to handle a toilet rat. I've heard stories of rats, perhaps from Tucson, popping out of fifth-floor toilets in New York City. I knew I should have taken that left toilet Albuquerque. And story four is true. A few researchers think that microbial life on Mars might be different because of the different conditions there, and that we might have inadvertently killed them when the Viking probes of the 1970s looked for life there. Some of them, not all of them. The idea was presented Sunday at the meeting of the American Astronomical Society in Seattle. The internal fluid of Martian microbes might be a mix of water and hydrogen peroxide, the researchers conjecture, so that it stays liquid at the low temperatures there. And the kind of tests the Viking probes did like heating or wetting the soil, could have been deadly to any peroxide-based oddball bacteria. I claim this planet in the name of Mars. Isn't that lovely? All of which means that story three, about 8% of Americans' caloric intake coming from liquids, is totally bogus. Because, in fact, we get 22% of our calories from liquids. Soda, sugared coffee, and tea, milk, etc. For more, check out the story on our website entitled, Liquids Make Up 22% of American Diet. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Scientific American Podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, www.siam.com. And the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and over at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs>